0: So just as background here, I was contacted via email a couple months ago about what I was told was a notorious cold case. I wasn't given many details. The source requested they remain anonymous and in follow-up communications, I learned it was regarding the murder of John JonBenet Ramsey, which of course I was interested in learning more about. What transpired from there was weeks of phone calls, texts, emails back and forth, breaking down and dissecting all aspects of the case with the information provided by this individual. This individual has connections to some of the people attached to the case in various ways and to differing degrees. Over the course of our communication, I came to see how and why this tragic case has continued to be framed as quote unquote unsolved in the eye of the public thanks to manipulated facts, overlooked evidence, and a self-serving media. So today we will be breaking down the case and hopefully shedding light on some of the facts that get lost in the shuffle over nearly three decades of shifting storylines. With that, I welcome my special anonymous guest. I suppose I'd want to start with asking you what made you reach out to me and what about this case led you on this journey? Hello. Thank you. <laughs> uh,
1: first of all, thank you so much for doing this. Um, it is such a generous and incredible opportunity that you have given me and uh, I am very happy to be here. So thank you. For me, I have been interested in this case probably like um, a good majority of the public has been since the get-go when the murder first occurred. I was younger then but I remember just something feeling off about the murder. And, you know, being at a younger age, I couldn't exactly put my finger on it. But over time, I still kind of would read news articles and watch documentaries. And it, it always piqued my interest. Fast forward to 2016. In uh, September of that year, the CBS documentary came out. And it was based on former lead investigator, James Kohler's book, Foreign Faction. I was completely blown away by the evidence in the documentary, the research that the investigators did. It was incredible to me. And I remember seeing the book and I wanted to know more about it. So I got the book, I read it and I was even more blown away by all of the mountains and mountains of evidence that were in the book. I just became fascinated with the case. I, at that point, decided that I wanted to have more in-depth conversations with people. So I joined chat rooms, discussion groups for this small community of people who have been researching the case for decades. During the course of that time, I was fortunate enough to forge friendships with people some of the most brilliant minds that I've ever had the opportunity of meeting with. Then fast forward from there, after years of having these discussions and debates with people online, I had quite a few doors open for me last year that I truly felt it was much like kind of living in a movie. It felt like at the time initially in my you know belief, there was no other reason that these doors were opening for me other than God had blessed me with them. I was able to meet and speak with people who have worked closely studying this case. And that led me to taking a trip to Boulder. I was able to meet with people in person and really have eye opening conversations of people who, some who knew the Ramses and some who just knew this case very, very well. At that point, I decided that I wanted to do something more. I felt like Jean Benet, in a sense, needed kind of PR representation. I know that might sound funny, but I couldn't figure out what it was I wanted to do. Somehow I got connected to your Instagram page. I saw it somehow when you were covering the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial, and I just immediately fell in love with your writing and your coverage of it and your wit and um, your satire. But most of most of all, and most importantly, it was your search for truth with the case. And I deeply admire that. And I thought, you know, I'm going to reach out to her. And I felt like I was throwing a very, very long Hail Mary. And I thought the worst thing would be that, you know, she's not going to respond to me. And that's okay. But I sent an email, I kind of poured my heart out in it. And the next day you responded and i was blown away and that's kind of what led me here and now here we are
0: i know so many weeks later it's it's been a slow kind of dragged out process but i think um it's been good because i've it's it's kind of given me time to digest all of these facts and you know it is a it is a story that has gripped especially people our age like this whole generation because we grew up with it you know it's always been sort of this tragedy this this mystery in our lives and it is one of those stories that ever you know we don't, we can't shake when I post about it I'm amazed by how much interest is still there you know nearly 27 years later so I think it's good that we sit down and kind of go through what you have taught me and shown me about the case and I suppose I mean it is such a layered and intricate case as yes. you've <laughs> To say the least. We're getting, like you say, the meat and potatoes of it, right? Yes. Uh, And so that's what I was hoping by writing the, I don't know how many parts I have. I don't know if it's like three or four parts. You know, I was hoping that if I break it down in text and let people read about it, and then we sit down and talk about it, hopefully, you know, everything makes a little more sense. Yeah, so I think we should maybe start with a family in Boulder, right? Because they're a prominent family, well liked, many friends with lots of connections, right? Yes,
1: John and Patsy Ramsey were a very affluential couple who resided in Boulder, Colorado in 1996. They had two young children Uh, beautiful children. The oldest was Burke. He was nine, almost 10 years old, and Jean Benet, who was six. They were very, very prominent members of their community, very active. Patsy was very involved in her children's schools and volunteering, fundraising. They were just the all-American family. You know, it, it definitely appeared to be that way. And they were from Atlanta, but they actually moved to Boulder in 1991 because John Ramsey's, uh, his computer company, Access Graphics, uh, the headquarters was located in Boulder. So that's why they moved there from Atlanta. And it was the all American family. I think that's what, you know, the public was so drawn to initially is this picture perfect family. Right. It kind of looks, too perfect, maybe, but I think that that's initially and it still is what holds the public's interest. You see all of these pictures of John Bonet specifically, but uh, the family, when the murder occurred, they were doing so incredibly well. Patsy Ramsey, she was recovering from stage four ovarian cancer, and John Ramsey's company had just that month in December reached the $1 billion mark in sales so everything was as good as it could get at that time and then all of a sudden tragedy struck on christmas night or early the following morning
0: so do you want to start there th- the night before the murder december 25th christmas night it's you know begins with dinner with friends right with the whites do you want to yes run through yes. that you know they had a, a typical christmas day
1: uh, the kids got up 5 a.m on christmas morning and They opened presents and did what most families do and uh, played all throughout the day. That evening, they went over to their best friend's house to have dinner. They hung out over there for a while, and then they came home that night. And by their account, they got home. They got the kids into bed. They went to bed themselves because they had to be up early the next morning to fly to have their second Christmas with John's two eldest children in Charlevoix, Michigan. So that was by their account how the night ended, was putting the kids to bed and then John and Patsy went to bed
0: themselves. And so everything changes that next morning, 5.52 a.m., a a 911 call is made from their residence, right? Correct. Uh, 5.52 a.m., a call comes
1: in to 911 and the dispatcher, Kim Archuleta, takes the call and on the other end of the line is a very, very distraught woman. She's begging and pleading for help. She uh, is stressing that her six-year-old daughter has been kidnapped, that a ransom note has been left, and to please send police, please hurry, we need help. And she's very, very, very frantic. And she's while she's pleading for help, she just says, please hurry, hurry, hurry. And then all of a sudden, it just stops. And it appears that the phone was hung up. Patsy thought she hung up the phone, but she did not hang up the phone. And what they later find out is that they could hear a few voices in the background. It sounds like about three voices speaking. And what Kim Archuleta, the dispatcher, stated in the uh, CBS documentary was that what really bothered her was that Patsy was so stressed, but as soon as she thought she hung up the phone, it just stopped. The tone, everything just (laughs) completely stopped. And that really, really bothered her.
0: And so that's what I thought was most interesting in that documentary is when they talked to the 911 operator and she she said she had never been interviewed and she did relay those details about you know how she she kind of felt something was off it also in my you know i linked the enhanced 911 call so that's in previous posts but Mm -hmm. she also patsy never once mentioned john Bonet's name right and she correct she said say her name she says uh my six-year-old
1: daughter uh, she says she's blonde uh she said we have a kidnapping we have a kidnapping but she didn't go into much detail. And what was also very noted to be a bit off later was that the ransom note stated, if you tell anybody about this, she dies. You know, it repeatedly states she will die. If you talk to even a stray dog, she will die. She will be beheaded, but she will die. And she, when she made the 911 call, she did not ask for police to come over and mark cars. She didn't mention any of this to the 911 dispatcher. And, you know, that can be stated that she didn't read the ransom note all the way through, but it's just very interesting. What also is very interesting is that she immediately after the phone finally did disconnect, she called over two sets of friends to come over immediately after the 911 call. Right. And that was who? That was their friends, the Whites, those were their best friends that they stayed for dinner the previous night, and uh, the Fernies. So those were the two friends that came over. The 911 call was placed at 5.52 a.m. that morning. After the police arrived, which was only a few minutes after the 911 call was placed, the friends arrived, both sets of friends arrived around 6.30 a.m.
0: Okay, and so those, they had just been with the Whites just hours before this? Correct, yes. Um, And so as far as the ransom note, which she claims, Patsy claims she found on the stairwell, right? Coming down the stairs or the spiral
1: staircase,
0: spiral staircase we see in the photos. It's a rambling 373 word instructional from an individual representing a small foreign faction. Correct. And they're demanding, you know, an odd sum. It's $118,000 written on a pad from the Ramsey house. Yes. So that alone, just those, those details right there are very peculiar, right? Suggesting that a killer sat in the home in the early hours of the morning on Christmas after brutally murdering this child in the basement and draft this lengthy note using a pen from the residence. It's just, the whole thing is, is so weird.
1: Well, it was definitely a red herring. I mean, it was it was staged. It was meant to, it was later determined by police and investigators that it was definitely uh, meant to mislead the police. Uh, Patsy claimed that she came down the spiral staircase after she initially stated that she woke up that morning. She came down and her first statement to police was that she went in and she opened the door to Jean Benet's room and she saw that she wasn't in her bed and she came down the spiral staircase. And then she found the ransom note on one of the stair treads and she glimpsed over it a little bit and then she realized what was going on she um and screamed that she had been kidnapped and John came down. She later changed her story saying that she first went down, found the ransom note and then rushed up to Jean Bene's room and opened the door and she wasn't there. So yes the ransom note was very odd. It's the biggest piece of physical evidence that there is. And it definitely was staged. And it's not your typical ransom note. You know, you look at the history of ransom notes, they're very quick and to the point it is, we've got your kid, we want X amount of money, we're going to call you and maybe one or two other sentences, but that's it. It's very short and to the point. It doesn't, it doesn't ramble on for two and a half pages. And it doesn't, It's not filled with all of these very, very dramatic tones and words.
0: Well, and there's there's other um, weird aspects to it, too, like some maternal inflections in the language, intentional, what appear appear to be intentional misspellings. Um, And then what's really weird to me, and I didn't know this until talking to you, was the lines that matched popular movie references, right? So, yes, they, uh, after investigators
1: looked at it, they started noticing that what appeared to be phrases uh, used in, in movies and such as ransom, dirty, hairy, and speed, it seemed to be somebody that was a fan of movies and was throwing these lines in there to either, well, obviously to continue throwing off investigators or to make it seem what they felt believable because, you know, it came from movies. What I'm trying to get to is that it came from thriller movies. Right. It was filled with phrases from thriller movies that definitely appeared to want to kind of oversell this ransom note.
0: I think that's the word I was looking for is overselling. The whole point of it is really going above and beyond overselling this. It's it's weird and it should be noted it's in the it's in the post too how the Ramseys were movie buffs, you know, they had cinema posters lining their basement walls. Yes. So, I mean...
1: And they had an eight-foot movie screen that would come down from, you know, their ceiling uh, in the master bedroom. So, And I
0: think, you know, also it's noted too that Ransom, the movie starring Mel Gibson, was playing in theaters when this murder occurred, right? And that that was a big blockbuster. I mean, I remember when it came out
1: correct i believe it came out in november of 1996 it was it was very it was very popular
0: movie. yes right what else do you want to mention here about the ransom note i th- there's a whole i wrote a lot about it but what else do you well i what think you that it? you
1: know it's it, i mean it's very telling that the the us secret service was able to determine that the pen that was used on the ransom note and the practice ransom note because everybody needs a practice
0: ransom note, right? Um, they were able to- Wait, So is, can I stop you for a second? Because yeah. is that true? There was, did they find like a draft of, was there two copies of this ransom note? Was the other, was it found in the house? Yes, it was on the pad.
1: So uh, there- a practice note was? It said Mr. and Mrs. And what appeared to be the beginning of an R so that okay. that was the prac. That's what they consider the practice ransom note. It said Mr. and Mrs. But okay. the actual ransom note itself that was left on the stair tread uh, was it said Mr. Ramsey. That, is, that was who it was addressed to.
0: Okay. So there was an edit there where it was directed solely at um, him. At John Ramsey. Correct. At John. Okay.
1: And so they, the Secret Service was able to match the ink that was on the pad, on the ransom note, to ink of a specific pen that was in the home. And the pad uh, in the home, it was where the ransom note, it was written on this pad. So what's important to note about that is also the pad had seven prints on it. So one of those prints was from the sergeant who handled the pad that morning whenever he was asking John Ramsey for handwriting samples. And the other fingerprint is from a CBI, Colorado Bureau investigator, handwriting expert. His print was on the pad. And then the five other prints out of the seven were Patsy Ramsey's fingerprints on the
0: notepad. I didn't know know that. that. Okay. So the, the police show up they are going over what they have and they're assuming that the daughter their daughter's missing right they don't yes i don't know if they check the house or what but they just are standing around for this out thinking that she is missing or has been kidnapped right which correct they I- were they were 100%
1: under the assumption that they were dealing with a kidnapping that's missing, what
0: they thought right. right correct
1: now one of the first officers there he did feel, you know, kind of like his spidey senses and felt something was off. But still, they were treating this as a legitimate kidnapping. They did search the house. Unfortunately, the wine cellar was not open. There was a block that would spin around at the top that would keep it from opening if you tried to pull it forward. You know, it was a door that um, you would not push open, but pull to open it. And there was a block. And so, but he, the officer that was searching the house realized that it would not have been a way for the kidnapper to exit. So the room was not searched. But again, they were treating this as a kidnapping. They did search the rest of the home. They did not find anything suspicious. They did not find any forced break-in. They didn't see any footprints outside but they still treated it as legitimate. They obviously wanted to exhaust every effort that they could in handling and resolving the kidnapping.
0: And I did, you know, you you're the one who reminded me about the Anne Louise Bardack Bardock article in 1997 in Vanity Fair. She breaks down this whole I mean it's like brilliant reporting, so I kind of wove that into the pieces because I just feel like no one has done a better job of her than Describing the the entire, you know, scenario, because you're referring to Officer, is it Richard French? Rick Rich French, yes, correct. This detail really stood out for me. It's just kind of so easy to imagine this. This is before they have found John Binet It says, French told colleagues that he had been struck by how differently the two parents were reacting. While John Ramsey, cool and collected, explained the sequence of events to him, Patsy Ramsey sat in an overstuffed chair in the sun, sobbing something seemed odd to french and later he would recall how the grieving mother's eyes stayed riveted on him he remembered her gaze and her awkward attempt to conceal it peering at him through splayed fingers held over her eyes mm-hmm. and then it goes into set you know seven hours later the strangled bludgeoned body of the child was storage room in the basement. So seven hours later, they go down and search. Somebody suggests that they go search the house and it's John Ramsey who finds her. Is that right? Correct.
1: After the friends arrived that morning, the first de- the detective, Linda Arnt shows up at the scene. And she is there speaking to both of the parents, they set up to trace the calls in the den for the kidnapper to call between eight and 10am, which is what the note said they would call between this particular window of time. And the deadline comes and what is very odd is that neither John nor Patsy say anything they don't address at the the 10 o'clock deadline time has passed, which is very, very odd. And not long after this happens, this is about roughly, I want to say 1040 a.m. to 12 o'clock p.m., John Ramsey goes out of pocket and he's not accounted for. It's later stated that he, he said that he was checking his mail. That's never been proven, but we don't know definitively where he was during that window of time. He does finally show up roughly around 12 o'clock and he seems a bit more anxious. He seemed very cool and level-headed that morning. But when he comes back after being out of pocket, he just seems incredibly anxious. And so Linda Arndt, trying to distract him, she tells uh, he and his friend Fleet White, his best friend, to go and search the house from top to bottom. Those were her exact words, top to bottom to see if they could find anything that you know seemed out of place that stuck out to them and when they were instructed to do so john immediately he grabs fleet and he just you know guns for the basement instead of going you know from top to bottom and heads down to the basement and they go downstairs they look in an area that's called the train room and start talking about uh, one of the windows down there that had been broken open. John Ramsey claimed that it was when he had to break into the house because he locked himself out the prior summer and they're looking around in this area and John continues walking further into the basement he walks down to the door where the wine cellar door was the one that had the you know block at the top and he opens it. And once he does, he screams that he found Jean Benet. Uh, what was found, what his friend Fleet White found to be off later, and he mentioned this to police, was that Fleet had been down in the basement earlier that morning when he first arrived to kind of check around the basement to see if he noticed. He was searching for Jean Benet and calling her name, but he was also seeing if anything seemed off. And he himself did go and check the wine cellar and he couldn't find the light switch. And he noted that it was just incredibly dark. He couldn't make out anything and he couldn't find the light switch. So he just closed the door. When John opened the door and screamed that he had found John Benet, he screamed this, but he had not turned the light switch on yet. Which okay. was, you know, that's a bit of a red flag because investigators also agreed that you could maybe see objects in the room with the light off, but you couldn't actually see what they were.
0: And his and he had his friend had already been down there and checked that area and couldn't see anything in that light, lighting. Right. Correct. So then, he, yes. Says, according to Anne Louise Bardack's article, it says. Lying on the cement floor was the lifeless John Binet, dressed in a white knit shirt and long underwear. There was duct tape over her mouth. A garrote made of white cord and a broken artist's paintbrush handle was around her throat. And there was a cord around her right wrist. The body was covered with a white blanket. Nearby was her red pageant nightgown described by a relative as her favorite possession. So he yanks the tape from her mouth, and according to the investigator, holding her with both hands around her at the waist, the way you would hold a doll, it says, carried mm-hmm. he her upstairs and laid her on the hardwood floor in the living room. And so from there, they kind of react, I, they both react in different ways. Patsy is hysterical and she throws her body over John Bonet, right? Yes. She and, um, um well when
1: John, like you said, when John brought her upstairs. It was very interesting the way that he held her. He did he he held her body extended from him, and both of his hands around her waist, and her head was up above, higher than than his was, and she, her body was facing him. But he, you know, he had her extended from him, not holding her closely, like you would expect, cradling her. Uh, she was kind of distant, and so he laid her down in the hallway by the front door. And Linda Arndt, instru- the detective Linda Arndt instructed him to call 911 to tend to Patsy. And she then moved the body. Unfortunately, she moved the body to the den. And John comes back into the den. And he is, he appears to lay and, and moan with beside Jean Bonet, and he appears to be crying, but what Linda Arndt noted in her police report was that she did not see any tears coming from John as he was making the moaning noises. A, uh, a few minutes later, you could hear Patsy screaming from the solarium, uh, the sunroom area, and she's being escorted into the den to which she sees Jean Bonet and she does she, uh, fling[s] her body over her, is sobbing, uh, just wailing uncontrollably, and she's begging Jesus to raise Jean-Benet like He raised Lazarus. And uh, they said a prayer, and um, you know, not long after the the house was cleared and sealed off as a crime scene, but those those were the moments after He brought her up the stairs.
0: And I think it is, you know, it's horrific to even imagine, you know, any for any parent to imagine themselves in this situation. But you know, instinctively we kind of do. So it is, you know, to imagine these um, sort of reactions. It, it is weird that he holds her by the waist, kind of distancing himself from her body, and you know, there was no, no there was no attempt to like resuscitate her. It's like no. I feel like when anytime you've been in a situation where you are just overcome with um you know adrenaline and shock you don't react you know in normal ways so I, it, it is weird that there's not a part of like display of denial when they find her like could she be like you know is she, I mean is Patsy screaming like is she is she okay like you know yes. so all of that missing from the scene it's almost what is so eerie to me about it, especially in Anne Louise's article is, it's almost like this sort of scripted production, then that, you know, in that hour where they find her body, it's like, she has her hands covered. She's she's watching the police, watching her, he's rolling around moaning, but there's no tears. And then nobody's asking, you know, there's just it's just missing that like sense of denial that I would assume would, you know be a part of any parent who finds their child who they believe is missing dead in the basement of their own home, correct? Correct, so, yes. Yeah.
1: It, I, no, I think, it as, also, as you as would I, think that they would try to. I'm sorry to, but I wanted to state this real quickly that they there was no um trying to take the cord that was deeply embedded in her throat when he found Jean Bonnet, there was a cord uh tightly bound around her throat. There was no attempt to remove it, and when he brought her upstairs, there was no screaming for Patsy or attempt at CPR or anything. Because yes, very much as a parent, you are what other people might be able to um, immediately notice. You know that this child is dead and and she's beyond help. You are, right. I would imagine, as a parent, going to be in denial initially. You know, you your child has been missing. Oh my goodness, you finally found her, but no, you don't want to believe that you did find her, but now she's been brutally murdered. So you're very correct in stating that, that there was not a sense um, of what appeared to be any type of um, denial.
0: Right. I just feel like in that moment, the human brain can't really process immediately that she is dead and that she's been brutally murdered in your own residence. When you have been led to believe supposedly that these people, that there is like, you know, an aspect of hope here that these people, if you do the right things, if you get them the money, they're going to bring your child back. So that's one thing I think that stood out to me is just, you know, the horrific imagining, you know, yourself in that position. Okay. So then we have some of the details of the crime scene. If you want to go over those, it says there's a perfect lip imprint and no tongue indentation to indicate a struggle. Yes. When John... Found Jean Bonnet. She had uh, wrist ligatures. He
1: removed one of them. They were very loosely bound. And there is about 15 and a half inches of cord in between each wrist ligature. And, you know, we'll cover that here in a bit as far as staging goes, but that was very odd. She was found with a nylon cord deeply embedded in her throat. And she also had duct tape over her mouth. What, in- what investigators later Uh, came to find out about the duct tape, as you stated, yes, there was a perfect lip imprint on the duct tape. There did not appear to be any bit of a struggle. There was no tongue indentation to indicate that she had tried removing the tape. It appeared to be put over her mouth after she had either been rendered unconscious or after she had died. So John found her with that. He took the duct tape off. Once the autopsy was done, what was initially thought to be solely strangulation, they came to find out that she died due to asphyxia by strangulation associated with craniocerebral head trauma, which is strangulation and a skull fracture. They did not expect this because there was no bleeding on her skull. Nothing appeared as if she had been hit. So when they found this, it was a pretty shocking find to see. And it was eight and a half inch skull fracture.
0: But there was no blood there. No. So there was no it was no bleeding, brain bleeding. Correct. Yes. They later uh, determined that
1: she had been alive for roughly about 45 minutes to two hours. And this was determined based on swelling to her brain. And what was theorized and then concluded was that she had been hit first with a very heavy object, and it caused the skull fracture, the eight and a half inch skull fracture. Her brain then began to swell. And roughly within that window of time, 45 minutes to two hours later, she was then strangled. And that is what ultimately killed her. But it is important to note that the head blow itself, the skull fracture, she would have eventually died from it.
0: Okay. So she was, and she was rendered unconscious from that, most likely from that blow to the head. Correct.
1: Yes. And also what was found during the autopsy was there were uh, bits of pineapple found in her stomach. I know many people know about that. She just had bits of a pineapple in her digestive tract. That was an interesting find as well. We'll discuss that shortly too. But most uh, specifically, because there was the bowl of pineapple that was found later by investigators uh, later that day uh, on the 26th. And noted uh, during the autopsy was what appeared to be a garage. It was a device that used to strangle Jean Bonnet. The items that were used to create the garage were in the home, were in uh, down in the basement.
0: And then also, you know, it says that her body was wiped down. It says, autopsy Note noted that her thighs and vaginal area appeared to be wiped down.
1: Yes, that was also noted. They uh, did see that it it appeared that the thighs and vaginal area had been wiped down. So that, you know, again, points to staging and cover up of a homicide.
0: Yeah, so there's all the Major points of kind of an obvious staging following her death, whatever, you know, hit her in the head. Then, so then after that call is made, I mean, it becomes news instantly, right? Like, as soon as it gets out that this beautiful, perfect family in in this small town, Boulder, Colorado, she's found in the basement. So it really, I feel like from the very beginning, that first day, it gripped the entire nation. And we were kind of glued to the developments as they, you know, were made public, but I mean, their behavior, I, I if you want to talk about the suspicious activity from the red flags. Yeah. Following that, that first day, like right after things got really weird. So maybe you can run through how they behaved and some of their actions, the family um, following, you know, news of it breaking worldwide. Well, I think it's also important to
1: note the, uh, most importantly, the, the red flags from that day on, the 26th. So I think it's you definitely want to keep in mind, I think you and I have discussed this of sometimes it's when you're looking at a homicide, sometimes it's not what people do, but it's also what people don't do. And many there were very, there were quite a few red flags and just suspicious activity that occurred on the 26th. We've discussed a few of them, but I did want to go over
0: some of yeah, the other ones. run, run through those everybody who's not aware yes. of them cuz we've talked about it. But go ahead. So the first
1: thing that was very off was that morning on the 26th when John and Patsy stated they came to realize that their daughter had been missing is they did not search the home before calling 911 there was no search done. John said that Patsy gave him the note, he read it, and he immediately told her to call 911. Also, another red flag is that they stated that they went to go and check on Burke, and this is stated in their their own book that they went to his bedroom and stood in the doorway. They saw that he was in his bed. They did not wake him. They did not check to see if he was alive. They just stood in his doorway and they thought best not to disturb him. And they let him stay there. After they had not searched the house, there was no way of knowing if the supposed kidnapper was in the home. And they didn't keep him by his side. And I think that many parents would say that, you know, if you find one of your children missing, the first thing that you're going to do if you have other children is check on them and keep them by your side to protect them. It's just instinct of what any parent would do. They, that morning, decided to let Burke leave the home and go and stay at one of their friend's houses. And they did this where they let him go and stay where there would not be any police protection. The Ramseys had police officers on site, but they said that they felt it would be best if he left the home. And whenever one of the police officers that morning tried to interview Burke before leaving the home, John intervened and said that, you know, he didn't hear anything he had slept through the entire night and that he he didn't know anything at all. So those are just a few interesting things as far as red flags go for your other child being in the home and wanting to protect them. And the Ramses did not appear to want to do that. They wanted to have him go elsewhere, and they didn't keep them close beside them.
0: I was going to say again, as a parent, you you can't help but put yourself in that situation. Again, that is just such an unnatural reaction to like not be terrified that your other child is also poss- potentially in danger. Exactly, and I mean they.
1: Another important thing to note is that Jean Bonnet had slept in Burke's bedroom. They had two twin beds in their room and she had slept in his room on Christmas Eve. So, you know, how did the parents know that maybe she went to go in and sleep in there on Christmas night? She could have. And how did Burke, did did Burke see anything? Did Burke hear anything? But they didn't wake him up. You would think that they would want to wake him and say, hey, did you hear anything? Did you see anything? And keep them Keep him close by them, but they did not do that. And this was a very large home. You know, this is all—it's almost seven thousand square feet. So, this intruder could have been—if th- if they were still in the home, they could have been hiding anywhere. Uh, they could have been hiding in his room, but they felt that it was best to leave him there at the at the time, and then later that it was best to have him go to a home that did not have a uh, police presence. A few of the other things that were noted as being suspicious you mentioned one of them as patsy looking through you know she had her hands over her face and she had the splayed fingers and she was peering at some of the other officers she appeared to be crying but she was you know staring at them and that kind of that threw a few of the investigators that were there that day and it just seemed very suspicious to me the biggest red flag which we have discussed is and you noted this in one of your writings was that john ramsey 35 minutes after finding his daughter's dead body was on the phone trying to get his pilot to get his plane ready so that he could fly from boulder to atlanta fly he and his family out of state after just finding his daughter's dead body and leaving her body that again goes back to the denial that we discussed it's just incredibly telling and what appears to be an unnatural reaction to just finding your daughter brutally murdered to try and leave the state immediately.
0: Right. Very very weird. So after this the, so there's all these major red flags within the first few hours and the 24-hour time frame from the time that they get the ransom note to you know the following morning where it's like across every news outlet. But then you know in the days and weeks after there's also some very suspicious behavior, right? Lawyering up right after the murder. Um, And yeah, could you wanna run through how they behaved in those following days and weeks? Yeah, so
1: it's pretty much immediate that they lawyered up. John Ramsey had his corporate attorney on hand the evening of the 26th, and this was also his friend. He is the one who advised John to seek counsel from day one. And by the 28th of December, so two days after the murder, the Ramseys had already hired their attorneys formally. It was uh, Fleet White, the best friend who the Ramseys had spent Christmas, dinner, Christmas evening with and were there with the, them the morning of the, the murder. They informed police that Mike Bynum, John's corporate attorney, had called Fleet White only hours after Jean-Benet's body had been found. He called them asking them if they were okay and kind of getting his account of what occurred that morning. And then the following day on the 27th, Fleet White was again interviewed by a three-person team of investigators uh, representing the Ramseys. So this is just, it's very interesting because instead of searching the neighborhood for this intruder who killed their daughter, the Ramses had their team, what appeared to be some of their team members speaking to their friends, asking them about the events that occurred on the 26th, And that's just not typical behavior. Obviously, I think anybody can agree with that if of parents who have just found their daughter murdered. So they did lawyer up immediately, they went on to hire a PR representative within a week of the murder. I mean, it was a million dollar team. They had eight lawyers, three publicists, two handwriting experts, and a former FBO profiler that they were paying to continuously put out that the Ramseys were innocent. I mean, I think this is a lot of money. And what is interesting to me is that they wanted to, right off the bat, put all of their funds or much of their funds into hiring this legal team to help portray their innocence versus hiring a security team. Because if there was some madman on the loose and you're frightened for your family, that's where I would want my money to and go. And you feel like a target.
0: Exactly. I mean, if you feel like you're targeted by these people, the last thing I would think of is my public image. You know, you're desperate to figure out who just killed your child. It's it's so crazy. The The PR thing really throws me, um, especially a week later, you know? I mean, the few things stand out, like him calling that same day to, you know, talk to his pilot and try and arrange this secret trip, whatever he was plotting. And then the, the you know, the million dollar team Pops up right away. And then PR, because I posted in one of the other chapters, you know, you can see them at church once they've, it's, it's sort of this production that they are framing them a certain way to show them grieving, you know, but it's a PR produced orchestration. orchestration. That's weird, right? I just feel like in public. Yeah, it was be the last thing on my mind. Yeah, this was only a
1: week after the murder occurred. This was January 1st, 1997. Many people have seen this interview. Many people have not. It was the interview that they did on CNN. They stated in their book that they wanted to do this interview to protect their reputation, to show the public what good people they were, and to also thank the public. What I found telling was in their book, they didn't state that they went on CNN to find the killer of their daughter or to plead with the public to help them find the killer of their daughter. That was more important to go on CNN than to actually interview with police. It was stated that Patsy was in no condition to interview with police. And then lo and behold, they go on CNN and have their appearance. It seems a bit scripted. And John Ramsey states in this interview that we need to find out who the killer is, not because we're angry, but because we have to go on. And he's saying not because we're angry only a week after this brutal homicide of his daughter has occurred. So they started definitely um, having their public image put forth. They hired a PR rep within a week. And the video that you posted in, I think it was your fourth uh, posting for the your series was there's the video of them coming out of a church and you you can hear the bells ringing. Many people think that this, and I also thought this, that it was the memorial service for Jean-Benet. But it was actually about a week and a half after the murder. They the Ramseys were back in Boulder and they went to a church service, and their PR rep alerted the press had made multiple phone calls and alerted the press, told them when to be at the church. So the Ramses knew that there was going to be a film crew there, they knew that there would be cameras. And the parents and their son exited out the front door. And what people later noted was that, typically at this particular church, the attendees would exit the side door, not the front door so they exited the front and their pr rep was down kind of forming lines with all of the attendees of the service he was helping them to form a line that the Ramses could kind of walk past as they're walking down the steps of the church so it, it was very much orchestrated
0: and i just want to And on the emphasis about you know their concern with reputation because throughout this whole thing that is the focus and the obsession with maintaining a certain reputation and image of them as you know a certain way
1: yes they very much cared about the the public perception and you can you I mean they say it in their own words in their book the death of innocence that John and Patsy wrote together they co-wrote what about our reputation? Our reputation. And it goes on and on at many pl- different uh, p- parts of their book where they're discussing their reputation and how their reputation was on the line. Oh, and then John Bonet, They care deeply about it and, and how the public viewed them. Very much so.